Welcome to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. I'm Bascom Guffin. And I'm Rupa Pillai. Today we'll be hearing an interview Rupa did with Kamari Maxine Clark on her piece, Notes on Cultural Citizenship in the Black Atlantic World, published in the August 2013 issue of Cultural Anthropology. Clark's piece is an introduction to a collection of three articles looking at cultural citizenship as it arises in Cuba, Trinidad, and Ghana. So Rupa, what got you interested in interviewing Kamari about this article? Well, I do work on Caribbean Hinduism, and in my reading to prepare for my project, I kept running into Kamari's work, her ethnography, Mapping Urban Networks, as well as her edited volume, Globalization and Race, which she did with Deborah Thomas. A lot of Kamari's work is really dealing with notions of race, which are issues that I'm interested in as well. And this piece by Kamari is an introduction to these other pieces that are much more ethnographic. And her piece is a bit more theoretical, right? Correct. Her introduction offers a history of the debate in which cultural citizenship emerged out of. So what is your understanding of what this term is? Well, cultural citizenship is how individuals are understanding themselves via culture and in a way is informed by their denial of being part of the state. So the fact that a state might not recognize an individual impacts how culture is utilized to offer an alternative notion of belonging. To be honest, cultural citizenship is still going to be a concept that eludes me in terms of having a definitive definition. If you try and figure out what a good definition will be using Iwa Ong or Rosaldo, you will still have similar but different definitions. So it's uh, sort of the, the classic anthropological statements of it's complicated and it depends. Precisely. <laughs> Well, I think we should hear what you and Kamari had to talk about. Definitely. Let's hear it. Today, I'm speaking with Kamari Maxine Clark about her article, Notes on Cultural Citizenship in the Black Atlantic World. Kamari, formerly a professor of anthropology and international and area studies at Yale University, is a visiting professor of anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. Kamari, thanks for taking the time. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. So I understand you just got back from the field. Where were you exactly? Yeah, I was in Kenya, in Nairobi, and then I was in The Hague, which is where the International Criminal Court is. It's part of a three-year National Science Foundation grant related to the International Criminal Court. So much of the work that I'm doing now is connected to the African-based cases and the African Union's response to what seems to be a zealousness to extradite or take on African cases to the exclusion of other people from other nationalities and other places. So part of the project involves tracking those cases, doing court monitoring, spending time at the African Union in Addis, as well as 
now of late, sort of tracking the cases that have unfolded in Kenya and Nairobi. So there are lots of little messy tentacles pieces that are part of that project. So what exactly do you mean by African-based cases? All of the cases are cases involving African perpetrators. Okay. So they're classified as extreme forms of violence in these regions. So in Kenya, there were indictments and investigations underway, and now the cases will start in The Hague at the International Criminal Court in the fall. There are currently cases with the Central African Republic, and recently there was a conviction out of an African-based case in the DRC. So, yeah, so I'm underway. This is It's a very messy and interesting and dynamic project. Well, maybe later on we can discuss that messiness and the struggles of doing a multi-sided project. For now, let's turn to your article that has just been published in the August 2013 issue of Cultural Anthropology. This is part of a forum that looks at cultural citizenship in the Black Atlantic world. A great way to start this conversation is explaining what exactly cultural citizenship is. And maybe if you could speak to the context in which this concept emerged, as well as how the forum came about. Well, when people approached me initially to comment on the AAA panel around which this issue was taken up, I thought, wow, 20 years ago, many of us were trying to think through this concept, but is it still a relevant term and and how is it? And it really pushed me to think about the genealogy of its emergence. So let me just map that. One of the most dynamic sets of contestations over the term was a contestation between Iwa Ong and Verena Stolke. On one end, Verena Stolke and others were concerned with issues related to the state and citizenship as it relates to the state and power and hegemony and the force of law insisted that there's quite a privilege that goes with using the term loosely in a way that undermines the real limits of the state. But there was another and more Americanist intervention around cultural citizenship that I classify as emerging from the other camp, which is heralded by Iwa Ong, but many others. Um, it was part of a post modernist interventionist period. Ronaldo Rosaldo, for example, in many ways was seen as being one of the people who popularized the term alongside Iwa Ong and others. And the attempt there was not simply to think of citizenship and membership in relation to the state, in relation to hegemony and limits, the force of law, but to think about the dynamic process through which people create community despite the state or in relation to the state or in response to the state and state limits. And it allowed theorists to think about both limits as well as creativity and dynamism and decision making and belonging and, you know, forms of empowerment. And out of that contestation came attempts to clarify what the term is, what it means and what it doesn't mean. And that's not to say that there has ever been an agreement, but I think the two camps were embattled around this concept, helped to clarify what was at stake here. In many ways, I think Stolke's camp might have insisted or pushed American anthropology and those who were more inclined to look at more postmodernist, post-structuralist approaches to agency and, and decision-making and cultural formations. It really pushed people to think about limits as well as 
productive creativity and forms of inclusion. So ultimately, what emerged from that debate and the standoff, the intellectual standoff, was both. And I think it produced an even more productive set of concepts by which people used Foucauldian concepts alongside post-structuralist concepts, alongside, you know, attempts to think about power with the limits of power. And um, thus, the term cultural citizenship became productive, but also allowed us to raise questions about the tensions within it. So as a sort of clarifying question, then, is how would someone distinguish citizenship as the everyday man understands citizenship in relation to the state in terms of legal rights from cultural citizenship? Yeah, the, well, the intervention there is that citizenship isn't simply about state-defined citizenship entitlement terms, uh, that cultural citizenship allows one to think about other ways that belonging and membership are defined outside of state-based belonging. And that's really the distinction. The, sti- the distinction is between who sort of the hegemonic state and entitlements to define belonging according to uh, state belonging versus attempts to define belonging that, that have to do with what people do with alienation when they don't belong to the state or they're excluded from state membership yet are part of a grouping that may or may not be embedded in in a given state territory. So it's really a distinction between state and non-state definitions and what we make of them. So if cultural citizenship is this way of understanding belonging that isn't state, well, I guess it is state-based, but it isn't, right? Yeah, it is. That, that's right. And it's right to, to highlight the tension. It, it's state effects. So what happens when you have a refugee who has been denied a claim, a re- refugee claim, who's claiming access to, it may not be citizenship rights per se, but it might be admission as a resident, as a legitimate and legal resident of a state. And if that claim is denied by the state, yet that refugee had been living in a given community, awaiting the decision for 10 years, had a family, had community, was part of a larger diasporic linkage. Despite the decision by the state, you still have attempts to create and imagine linkages. And so much of the, the debates around this question emerged, I think, in many ways. There was a key moment in 1983 with the publication of Imagined Communities. And I think I mentioned that in the article in which we really began to think creatively and deliberately about what nationalism means and what national identity means and, and, and how is it that these things are formed and shaped. And there are a lot of other mechanisms and push factors that shape who people become and how they're aligned and what they imagine their linkages to be that are in relation to pressures by the state, but also are outside of them. So they're part of the effects of state decision-making, the state apparatus, uh, but also exist alongside and outside of those processes. And it's that binary or dialectic that many of us are interested in who took up the term and began to think it through and push the boundaries for the meaning of that concept. 
Well, that sounds like a very messy thing to work through with so many different elements of it is, it isn't, but it is. Yeah, and I think that that's the way we ought to live our conceptual lives, really, that, you know, that modernity has brought us many fixed categories and concepts. What many of us who are interested in deconstruction and interested in demystifying these social categories that appear real and fixed, what many of us are committed to in many ways is thinking about the the way that those things exist in dialectic terms. And so it's neither one thing or the other, but all of them. And and the the way that they push each other and come into tension is really where life is lived. It's it's in these spaces in between. It's these spaces of tension and friction and and complexity and what people do with them. So I'm assuming you were in the process of doing your own dissertation research at the time of this debate, right? Yes, yes. It was a really wonderful time, that period, to be thinking about these questions, both the influences from imagined communities, later the debates around cultural citizenship, questions, um, Arjuna Padurai's modernity at large, both the usefulness of that text as well as the the need for a critique of the text. Uh, All of those things were part of the same sets of conversations. And I think it was a very, it it was was truly an exciting period for me to be doing work on that topic uh, related to citizenship. Yeah, that sounds like a very interesting time to be training. Do you mind speaking about how that debate informed your project? If I remember correctly, you were doing work on the Yoruba religious tradition and trying to map it transnationally. Yeah, that's right. The book that emerged from my dissertation work was Mapping Yoruba Networks, Power and Agency in the Making of Transnational Communities. And ultimately, it really was a an experiment in making sense of a group of people who were, in terms of their citizenship, classified as American, but they defied the category American. So they didn't want to be seen as American. In fact, they didn't use the term, nor did they use the term African-American. They were black American, but they saw themselves as African, and they saw themselves as African because some centuries ago their ancestors came from an African region and what they were interested in doing was mapping their ancestral lineage some you know many hundreds of years earlier the problem was many of the records that the state recognized as legitimate weren't available to them because of transatlantic slavery and because of the conditions in which they came to America, which was under conditions of bondage and slavery. And so these black Americans, after the black power movement of the 1960s in the U.S. and mostly the East Coast, started a revitalization movement, um, a black revitalization movement to reclaim African traditions as their own. And part of that reclamation moment involved reclaiming Yoruba. They saw themselves as Yoruba practitioners. They used rituals and forms of divination, forms of liturgy and law to assert their place as as African and as Yoruba more specifically. And so one of the things that I was interested in is it was asking, how does this reclassification project even happen? How is it that this can be seen as a legitimate mechanism? How is it that these forms of cultural citizenship can be taken as, as relevant and legitimate? And what are the ways that these diasporic yearnings and transnational yearnings are made real 
in the Americas, in this community that they've created on acres of land in the American South, where they've built this village with kings and queens and compounds and, you know, goat and sheep, etc. They've built an aesthetic that could, for most people, look like an African village in, in any region in West Africa. And so I was interested in, in taking a look at the architecture, the imaginary, you know, the forms of ritualization and the, the workings of the law and history to think about how this reclassification of citizenship can, happened and at what points is it seen as legitimate by participants and at what point are there tensions around the legitimacy of this community. And so that was the, the focus of, of the research. In many ways, it was being propelled by these questions of cultural citizenship and national imaginaries and, and deterritorialization and the ways that we might think differently of the state and the field when these sites are outside of traditionally demarcated state boundaries. I guess to make this concept more tangible, could you offer an example from that research of that tension within this community in the American South that could illuminate cultural citizenship a bit more? I think the most profound for me was the use of ritual mechanisms for creating legitimate forms of cultural citizenship, what they saw as legitimate forms. Because in many ways, when I started the project, I was interested in legal questions. I was interested in a set of other questions. I wasn't as interested in religion, per se, or religious nationalism. I tried to avoid it, in fact. And it just kept on hitting me in the face. And, I mean, to use the term, you know, I, I couldn't avoid it because it was central to the ways that people were conceptualizing and legitimizing their world. So to give an example, one of the things that they do in the village is they do these river readings and roots readings in order to determine who is who, you know, what people's um, descent line is, sort of like contemporary DNA readings. Before DNA readings came, came in fashion, um, one could go and do a roots reading, and it's still a popular way of knowing about the past and uh, in Oyotunji, but people also pursue DNA readings, of course, alongside them. And so with this roots reading, one would figure out one's ancestral line and maternal line and paternal line. And so the diviner would use the divining tools and ask the gods, you know, questions about who is in front of him or her. And from that consultation, would emerge a narrative that would explain that past. And it was a past, you know, how that person came to be in America. And so, for example, in my case, I did a, a number of readings. One of them was the river reading. The other was the roots reading. And in the roots reading, there was a whole story about my maternal line and a story about my paternal line and about the women and about the men. And from that, you know, once I finished the my roots reading, people then asked, oh, what were the results of your roots reading? Who are you? You know, where are you from? Where were your people from? And this is an innovation that, of course, emerged in the absence of the, the kind of ancestral line that one would have if one wasn't enslaved and, and lost all records. And so it's an innovative form, but but it's seen as a highly legitimate form because it's seen as diviners communing with the ancestors and that in of itself is seen as a legitimate form and they're asking questions and getting the word and with the word comes the possibility to interpret 
that message and in that message then a, a statement about the past and so that was the story about I mean I, I, without going into depth the book really goes into depth because I actually use that as a case of my own roots reading as a way to talk about the delineation of the past and the way that these uh, ritual mechanisms are used to identify and understand the past and so it, an interesting process there are many other re readings that are done a whole range of readings there are incantations um, and a, there's a particular structure of incantations that are used for ritual and the idea is temporally that they're communing with the ancestors that it's that linkage is like no other, right? And it, it is part of what is informing the legitimacy of their claim. It's not the state. It's not an American passport. It's the, the ritual technology that is used to justify it. And it, it happens within a, a particular structural form, right? A, a, a particular uh, linguistic form. And much of what I did in that book was to map and, and make sense of what that structural form was and what the overlying narratives were and, and how it worked and how it became believable. Because what we're talking about is a, a movement of millions, uh, not just in Oyotunji village. Of course, that's a reclassification movement, but if you think about Cuba, you think about Brazil, Trinidad, um, and then West Africa, as well as other places where you have that ritual form, uh, you know, we're talking about millions and millions of people who are part of that movement. And so it's not to be taken lightly, I think, in any form. And, and in part, what I wanted to do was understand uh, the narrative structure, the, the ritual form, and and how these reclassification and transnational linkages were made real. Yeah, that's pretty incredible how this village in the American South gets connected all over the world through these rituals. That's right. And the rituals, that's one part of it. I mean, there are many other mechanisms, but I think the ritual forms are the, probably the most profound. Definitely. And that's what struck me about all the different articles of the forum, how we have all these different notions of cultural citizenship being understood through religion, through heritage, through history, and how interesting it is that this debate from the 90s is still salient in our contemporary moment. It's great that you've said that it, it remains relevant because I have to share my confession, which is when I first asked to participate, as I said earlier, I, I thought, um, well, you know, is there anything else that I can contribute to this debate? I, I felt as if I had already published a book on it. I, I didn't know that there was much else to say on, on this topic. Um, and I wasn't sure you know, what the value would be of having another AAA session on the topic. But in fact, it humbled me. I mean, to think about the significance humbled me in a sense, because it the, the reality is that when I started to think about the literature and the debates, my work and the work of others, I realized that actually the cultural citizenship language didn't hold the same traction as it did in other regions. And that's part of the tension that I raise in the introductory piece. Actually, what we found with the Black Atlantic writing was more of an inclination to talk about diasporic linkages, transnational linkages, globalization, and less about cultural citizenship. Just to clarify, the Black Atlantic is what exactly? 
Yeah, it's a term popularized by Paul Gilroy, but innovated by Robert Ferris Thompson, which perhaps is the parallel concept that emerged alongside cultural citizenship. And the Black Atlantic was an attempt to both mark transatlantic slavery, so the, the movement of African slaves from Africa to the Americas and elsewhere, geographically and temporally. So it was an attempt to think about a diasporic formation that had as much to do with modernity as it had to do with the making of the Atlantic world. And that term became a popularized term to talk about those transnational linkages between Africa, around Africa, in relation to sort of black people moving in in different regions. And, of course, black being, you know, a political term, a political concept. And so from that and from Paul Gilroy's popularization, we had the use of the concept, the Black Atlantic. So you just mentioned black being a political concept. Do you mind teasing that out a bit more? Because I think in the United States, we have a very specific understanding of what black is in relation to race. But within your introduction and the other articles in the forum, it becomes very apparent that black is something more complex. I suppose you could say it's everything and nothing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's the theme of the conversation. Yeah, precisely. Um, you know, what is black? It's what we make it in many ways. Yes, it's true that in the U.S. there's a history of pronouncing and regulating the limits of race or the ways that we conceptualize race. And so legally, black and white meant particular things in relation to the human and there were ways of testing and classifying who was black and who was white. It had to do with blood, etc. And there were ways of knowing that, you know, had to do with hair and facial type. You know, it, much of it came out of Darwinism and, and from their early anthropology and other forms of science, craniology, etc. So, you know, all of those techniques were ways of regulating and forcing the, the meanings of race. But... What we have, you know, if we fast forward some 150 years, uh, what we have are the effects of racial regulation, which has led, you know, part of the effects have produced forms of identification and inclusion and exclusion that are very messy, that can't easily be regulated, that, you know, with mixture, we've had the far more complex ways of thinking about identity. And so when when I talk about the Black Atlantic and many of us who write about issues having to do with race, when we talk about blackness, we're we're actually talking about blackness being what people claim blackness is, as opposed to us regulating what that category is, with recognition that there are effects that emerged in the modernity of state formation, American state formation, that regulated the meanings of subject formation, right? So racial types were regulated, as I've said, but from that emerged a much, you know, a messier form of conceptualization where someone who might not look black according to those historical phenotypic classifications may very well claim blackness as their own because of descent lines or because of a whole range of other things, their sense of ancestry, uh, etc., so for that reason, we use it in a cultural and political sense that it is what people claim it is. So that's part of the apex of the conceptualization. Well, one of the last points you make in your introduction is the challenge you put to the reader. 
to think about the ethnographic field and the methods we use to study it, which is an interesting question to pose. I can't think of the last time I was challenged like that in an introduction or an article. So I'm curious what prompted you to ask that question of your reader. I, I suppose anyone who knows my writing or the, the work that I've done over the last, I suppose, 10 or 15 years, knows that it in many ways has been key to my raison d'etre in anthropology. So this question of, about the making of social categories, the making of our field studies, you know, how we study them, and the recognition that the field has changed is very much part of my own commitment to the work that I'm doing. So if if we're interested in studying and thinking about cultural citizenship of the Black Atlantic world, at times it will require that we think outside of the state. At times it might require thinking outside of, you know, multiple cities. It means we have to be far more dynamic and mobile in, in doing the work that we do, and the way that we conceptualize it has to be flexible. And in, in many ways, the current project that I'm working on is a reflection of that. What happens when we're interested in studying formations that are movements in the making? What do we study? And it's much unlike the inception of the popularization of early anthropology, where you would have people who were an expert in a, of a given village, but couldn't tell you much about anything beyond that village. And the reality is that the, this approach that in, incorporates thinking about cultural citizenship, thinking about state effects, what happens outside of these regulatory bodies or outside of these units known as the state, it really does force us to rethink our methods and to conceptualize processes well outside of the sort of traditions of, of our field. Even when I started teaching at Yale in 1997, 1999, one of the first courses I taught was a course on transnationalism. I taught another course on transnational methods. And what was that? Maybe 14 years ago, that was a course that had never been taught, had never been thought of. It was not, uh, you know, the, the field was changing very rapidly even then, the way that we were conceptualizing what was acceptable. And so 14 years have passed, and now we're at a point where new graduates or undergraduates can come out of anthropology programs with some kind of fluency around the complexity of the field and thinking well beyond the Malinowskian model of, of fieldwork and, you know, the notion of multi-sided work and the, the idea that, that one has to be innovative in studying people and places that, you know, you might think that you're going to a village in India, but in fact, when you get there, you find out that everyone else is in Houston, Texas, that you need to interview. Um, <laughs> what does that mean? You know, um, <laughs> how agile does one need to be in, in that case? And, you know, many people have made the joke that, do you remember that um, that cartoon of people in a stone hut? And they're running to hide their televisions because they say, look, the anthropologists are coming. <laughs> <laughs> so the field that once was, that was part of the Malinowskian imaginary, is no longer even part of our imaginary. And, you know, instead, the reality is you get somewhere and you find out that some of the key people are, are where you've just come from. <laughs> And um, 
And I think that opens up a lot. It really pushes us to think about, as my colleagues in the early 90s were thinking, you know, what constitutes the field? How do we understand it? How do we track it? What do we do with state definitions of, of categories, whether they have to do with citizenship or national identity, or whether they have to do with how we map the boundaries for what is an appropriate dissertation project. And unfortunately, there's no one answer for that we've come to see. There's no formula. One can't say you do 20 interviews in this one region and do surveys in the other region. You know, it's far more complex. And that's why I ended the piece by saying that it really, we need to to think about how we study the field, how we make sense of these formations, and, and it involves looking introspectively at, at our own assumptions, our own categories, and our own agility, and wh- what's possible within the domains of our own institutions and our own projects. Yeah, and I think it is those possibilities that are really interesting and sometimes frustrating when we think about a project and how to do it. The multi-sided nature of the majority of projects now bring up questions of feasibility and what happens with this constant movement between places. Yeah, I think so. And I think also there's a temporality component to it that I think is important, that for those of us who have made these scholarly questions part of our lifelong agenda, and even if not lifelong, you know, doing a one-year project Probably, if it's a one-year project, then we have to be clear about what's possible within a one-year project. But for the most part, there are multiple phases. Even after one finishes a dissertation or one finishes one project, the, the reality is that the project is never finished and things continue to change. And one has to really stay on top and recognize that it's always, you know, movements in the making. People are, things are often, are always changing and they have been and it, it makes it far more complex. And so the temporality aspect, I mean, in my case, what I wrote about and studied in Oyotunji Village in the 80s and 90s is, you know, it's a very different place today. And, you know, there's phase two, or phase three, phase four. I mean, I think it's it's important to think about multiple phases uh, that are part of these projects, and perhaps it, it involves having accepting the humility of that reality that there's a certain part that's knowable in the, our limited constraints, and that's what we pursue, and then we do what we can. Um, and be innovative in figuring out the other pieces that we can also pursue and understand. And we do just that. The other thing I wanted to end with is to say that I think cultural anthropologists could do a lot more teamwork and fieldwork, uh, teamwork, working within groups. I think that will be a key to the increasing complexity of the work that we do. Okay, so do you mean collaborative in terms of collaborating with the research subjects? Yeah, well, not just, yeah, perhaps with the people who we, who, who are subjects of our research, but also with experts who are fellow anthropologists, with our students, with future students, people in the field who become students. Now with this ICC project that I'm working on, it's based in multiple regions. We just finished phase one in The Hague. We're moving to Addis in January. And I've been working with teams of people who are interested in and writing about similar issues, not 
always the same, but, you know, we meet, we convene, we compare notes, we do interviews together, we reflect, and then we move on to our own projects, or our own focus and our own questions. But I think we need more of that and not less. And, and of course, there are limits. One, one needs the funding in order to do that. You need to be able to support that kind of project. And if not, then one needs to be innovative with collaborative work. And I think increasingly, this will be critical for the success of these complex projects, uh, increasing the amounts of teamwork and collaborative work. I, I think that that really is key, and we need to figure out ways in the academy for those of us who are on, who are tenured or you know in the process of tenuring our colleagues. Um, right now, in cultural anthropology, we're not really able. The measure is an individual measure of success and of achievement. We often, you know, we look at individual contributions. You know, every now and then people have articles that they've co-authored with others or books that they've co-authored with others. But for the most part, the emphasis is on individual contribution. And I think more and more we need to create evaluation mechanisms that allow us to reward those who take on complex projects and do it with teams to set examples for others, especially students coming up for what is possible. And, you know, I, I think we need funding resources that allow for that. We need incentives that allow for that. And I think only with more ambitious thinking about what's possible around collaboration can we really start to tackle the real complexity that many of us are trying to understand, but at times failing miserably. Yeah, I think the future you're envisioning is something I would love to see the discipline pursuing. Good, we're in agreement there. (laughs) I'm joining you. Yeah, there are a number of others who have written on this and continue to agitate. I know Paul Rabinow and um, Joannes Fabien and George Marcus and a number of people in their book, the recent publication, The Anthropology of the Contemporary, there's a small portion of that book where they also talk about collaborative work. And I think it's mostly George Marcus who raises it. I might be wrong, but I believe it's Marcus. And I think this is perhaps when we think 10 years from now, what will anthropology look like? What will the field methods look like? What will appropriate objects of study be? I think in many ways, this is the future. This has to be the future, frankly, or, you know, we can celebrate the end of anthropology and and say that, you know, we did our part, we created and let go of the culture concept. You know, there are a number of contributions, but unless we're really able to be relevant in the complexity of our world, I think we will fail to really capture the complexity out there because we're still only focusing on minutia and not the macro processes that are part of the effects that shape and are interpolated by this minutia. Well, Kamari, thanks again for taking the time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anthropod. You can find more episodes and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. For the show notes to this and other episodes, visit colanth.org and search for Anthropod. Please leave comments on the shows here. We'd like to get a conversation going between listeners. We'd also love it if you would leave a review of the podcast on iTunes. This will help promote the show further and help us to reach more people. The music for today's show is Sweeter Vermouth by Kevin MacLeod. You can find a link to this piece in the show notes. I'm Basco. And I'm Rupa. Thanks again to Kamari Maxine Clark, and thanks to you all for listening. Thank you.